Well, let's get into God's word here. Um, you can open your Bibles, but we're not going to open them up to Luke. Um, if you do need a Bible, uh, the ushers are coming by. Please raise your hand and they'll get one to you. If you don't own one, um, just remind you that you, you can always keep... Did I... Did you lose me again? Oh, we're good. Okay, you're, play, you're playing with me is what you're doing. Okay. Um, you can always keep that. It's our gift to you. Uh, but we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians, actually, this morning. Um, chapter 5, verse 14. So, in your New Testament, you got the Gospels. Then you move through the book of Acts, uh, into the, the Pauline epistles there. And 1 Thessalonians is kind of near the end of Paul's epistles. Um, we're in chapter 5. Verse 14. Now, let me just back up for a second. We've been in Luke now for about a year, uh, maybe a little under a year. And I love, I love just trekking through, you know, books of the Bible. It's awesome. It's, uh, it brings me to say things that I otherwise wouldn't say, to see things that I otherwise wouldn't see. Uh, I've been enjoying it. Hopefully you have as well. But I want to let you know, I, I don't um, have this kind of rigid schedule or for formal kind of uh, commitment to it uh, as a process, like I've got to go through the book or whatever. Um, I'm always open to what God might put on my heart uh, for you guys, and um, I'm always asking God to keep me current. Um, and so my home group, uh, I'm in David and Lenora Lynn's home group, and we've been going through First Thessalonians now for quite a while. About a month back, we came to this text, First uh, Thessalonians 5, verse 14. And I was so moved by it at the time that I basically, the next morning after we had met, I, I woke up and essentially outlined all that will become these next two weeks of messages. Uh, there are just a number of things on my heart in regards to our, our community, what God would want for our church, and I saw a lot of it um, coming to light here in uh, verse 14. So, if you're all right with it, First Thessalonians 5, verse 14, let's read it, and uh, let me pray. And we urge you, brothers... Admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Let's pray. God, uh, I know I'm doing the talking here this morning. But really our, our goal in, in coming, gathering, opening up your word is to let you speak, to let you do the talking. It's, it's my great desire in preaching to, more than hearing myself speak, to be hearing you speak, to be letting you speak to us. Through your word. God, so I'm asking today that you would allow me to be a vessel, allow me to be a mouthpiece. And grant me 
even ears to hear what you would say to this church. Jesus, I long for the day when we're able to love one another truly. When the the fog of self-concern and self-centeredness is lifted and we truly walk in the fulfillment of the two great commandments, loving you with all our heart, mind, soul, strength, and loving your neighbor as ourself. I know that that is going to be part of our inheritance and glory, that we're going to be imperfect in the march to that day. But, God, I pray that you would start to develop that more and more in our church. I pray that you would use our time together this morning, next week, in this text, towards that end. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Um, so, I grew up, you know, 80s, 90s, okay? Um, but I've been told, and I imagine some of you guys grew up in the 60s, right? Anybody grow, growing up, coming of age in the 60s? I, I've been told that the 60s were all about free love, right? <laughs> it's in every rock song, you know. It's the whole political scene. Free love. That's what the 60s were all about. Well, 1 Thessalonians 5.14, if I could put a little slogan on it. It's all about wise love. It's all about knowing how to love the person that's standing in front of you. Whether you're at the office or you're walking around the neighborhood, or you're in your bedroom, you're in the church. We know this person deals with sin, just like us. We know this person deals with suffering, just like us. We know this person needs the love of God and needs to be loved by others, just like us. So, How do we do it? What does love look like for this person in this moment, here and now? What does love say? What does love do? What is wise love for this person standing in front of me? That's what I think Paul is after in this verse. He's trying to push us forward towards Wise love, that we would be a church that knows how to love the, the, the individual sitting next to us, standing before us, that we're married to. So this morning, we're going to proceed through three headings. Um, first, wise love in context. Second, wise love in definition, and then third, which really is going to flow into next week uh, with more of like a part two to this third point, wise love in action, okay? Wise love in action. So let's begin with wise love in context. Um, 
Before we address the particulars of our verse, I want to let the surrounding context of this letter kind of orient us, all right? Since I'm just kind of dropping us in, I'm not much of a parachute preacher. I don't like to just kind of pick out a verse and and run with it. I want to know, okay, I'm reading this verse, but it's in a context. And if I get that context right, I can I can understand and apply this verse right. At least that is the hope. So... I'm going to deal more next week with the kind of details of the context um, in 1 Thessalonians. But for now, uh, for this morning, there are really two overarching themes in this letter that I want to bring to our attention. Um, I do think that seeing these clearly will help kind of orient us within our verse and we can interpret it right. Um, the first major theme that I wanted to bring out that Paul is, is developing here is this. The church is a covenantal family. The church is a covenantal family. Now, this theme is already hinted at in our verse, if you read it carefully. Um, It's right there at the beginning. He says, and we urge you, what? Brothers. Are these guys genetic, you know, genetically related brothers? No. We urge you, brothers. This is family language. And by the way, so that the ladies don't feel left out, in the Greek, it, 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 it also includes the idea of brothers and sisters. In fact, most of your translations will put that in the margin for you. Um, so I don't want you thinking that it's just brothers here. But And we urge you, brothers. This is family language that Paul is using as he begins this kind of string of commands and teaching us how to do wise love with one another. We might not immediately think all that much about the word brothers. In fact, I walk around and I call people bro, you know, and what's up, bro, and all these things. And so we might think, oh, this is kind of standard language. But for Paul, this actually is connecting to a much larger system of his thought. And it's a system of thought that he's particularly developing in the letter of 1 Thessalonians. It's awesome. Let me take you on a journey for a, for a moment. We're going to go on a family vacation, if you will, through the, the letter, uh, just to look at how we as the church are in fact the covenant family of God. Paul begins by addressing this letter in verse 1 of chapter 1 to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So right when he's he's coming right out the gate and he says, listen, I want you to know God is our Father. We have a common Father in Him. In other words, we are in the same family. That by virtue of our adoption in His Son, Jesus Christ, because of what He did on the cross, we're in His family now. God is our Father. But, if you keep reading, and I would encourage you to look at these verses with me, so I don't want to lose you. I'm in chapter 1, now verse 2. Because if you keep reading, the familial language continues. I want to read uh, chapter 1, verses 2 through the first part of verse 5 now. And hear this. We give thanks to God, always, for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Remembering before our God and Father, 
your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, now here's the first appearance of this word, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So here we have it again. God is our father. And because he is our father, Paul now addresses the church as brothers. Because you've been brought in under this common father, you now are brothers and sisters in the Lord. We are a covenantal family. But now here's where it gets particularly interesting. And here's where Paul just kind of, he goes on this barrage of metaphors uh, in, in the letter of 1 Thessalonians that just, you can't escape that he's trying to say, we are a family. We are in this together. Let me show you what I mean. Um, he starts talking about his relationship with the Thessalonians. And he, he does it along almost every conceivable kind of family analogy. So here's what he says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, now verses 5 through 8. He talks about himself like a mother. We never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. And here it is, verse 7. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you'd become very dear to us. Let me ask, do you have any new moms in here? I mean, I know we do in the church. Some of them aren't here today, I don't think. If you recall being a new mom, what's one of the first things that you kind of have to face? Uh, it's like this, this beautiful agony. <laughs> it's life is no longer about me. It's no longer about me. No mom is looking to their newborn uh, and say, you ought to provide for me. No, no, no. It becomes very clear to the mom, my life now is about providing for you. And so as Paul approaches the Thessalonians here, talking about his apostolic ministry, he's talking about the family again. And he says, I was like a mom among you. You know how a mom just wants to lay down her life for her kid? Well, that was like me with you. I didn't come asking you to fill my pockets. Feed my mouth. I came ready to lay my life down for you. We're a family. That's what families do. That's what mothers do. Now, clearly, Paul is, is, is driving at something here because if we keep following there, uh, him there in, in chapter 2, and we move on from verse 8 to verse 11, he actually shifts the metaphor on us. And he goes from, from mother now to father. All right? Now I'm like a father. Now hear him. This is verse 11 of chapter 2. For 
You know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So, we make it clear given our day and age. He's not talking about gender fluidity here, like sometimes I'm like a mommy, sometimes I'm like a daddy. No, he's saying the church has this familial bond. That we are a family and we operate along the same lines as a family would. So I'm like a mother in my gentleness and my willingness to lay down my life for you. I'm like a father in my laboring for you and teaching and exhorting you to know the wisdom and knowledge of God. I'm like a mother. I'm like a father. But he's not done. Lest we think that um, he only puts himself in kind of the position of authority in the family metaphor, he actually goes on later and puts himself in the position of child in the family. This isn't immediately evident, so hang with me, but chapter 2, verses 17 to 18, he says this, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again. So the story back in, I think, Acts 17 or 18 shows that that this persecution arose when Paul was in Thessalonica and they basically drove him out of the city. And Paul is saying, we were torn away from you and it grieved me and I just wanted to get back. Now, you might be looking saying, I don't see any mention of him as a child here. Where are you getting that, Nick? Um, Well... Interestingly enough, this Greek verb translated torn away in our text literally means orphaned, orphaned. So the idea is to be torn away from you, Thessalonian church, was like me, the kid, losing his mommy and daddy, losing his family. Like when I had to go from you, I was so sad. I felt like an orphan. I felt like I I was missing my home. And that's why again and again, I longed to get back to you. It's pretty awesome. In all of this, Paul is emphasizing one profound reality. Namely, The church, you and I, those who've been adopted in Jesus Christ through the gospel, we are the covenant family of God. That we've been brought into relation with one another and there is a bond that runs deep, a bond like family. And so, you know, we've been brought into covenant with God in Christ and through Him we've been brought into covenant with one another. Covenant brothers and sisters, under one covenant father in one covenant family. That's the picture I have for us guys. This is actually why you could pray for me. In a few weeks, I do think, Lord willing, I'm going to be um, rolling out perhaps uh, a covenant membership course that we'll actually do uh, during, the, uh, during the Sunday service. Um, I think that will probably start September 11th, God willing. But I want us to get, we are a family and we are committed to one another. And Paul wants us to see that here as well. Now, let me ask you a question. 
Is this how you approach Mercy Hill? Is this how you approach Mercy Hill? Like, like a mother laying down your lives for the other members here. I see plenty of you guys doing this. It's amazing to watch. Like a mother, just, I want to pour out for the people in this church. Or like a father, I, I want, I want to make sure I'm laboring to instruct the other members in the way of the Lord. I want to lead us onward. I see a lot of us doing that. Or like a child. Here's a question for you. It's amazing when you read Paul, and I encourage you, read through 1 Thessalonians this week and You'll see it, but he has this earnest desire to be with them because he sees it as family. And, and so I wonder if when you miss a Sunday service or when you miss a chance to kind of fellowship and worship with God's people, do you almost feel like an orphan, like you missed out? Like you just, I wish I could be there. Or is it kind of like, eh, take it or leave it. Eh, you know, my walk's really just about me and Jesus. And if I get to be with the saints, cool, but you know, He's looking at this, he's going, man, we are a family. And if I'm not with you, I'm an orphan. I should also say, are we aware of the great love that God has granted us that we would be called the children of God? Do we just live in that reality? We have a father that is caring for us. And that when he calls us to one another, he's also calling us to himself. He's committed to us. He loves us like a dad does. And he loves us like a mom does. And he'll see us through to the end. So Paul knows if we don't get, if we don't get this kind of uh, covenantal family reality, uh, we're not going to understand, we're not going to walk in the wise love of 1 Thessalonians 5.14. That's why I think, I think he, he throws in that word brothers there. I urge you brothers, admonish, encourage, help. Be patient. I urge you, brothers, if you're going to walk in this kind of wise love that we, we, we're going to watch play out in, in verse 14, you've got to know that you are in the covenant family. You've got to have that sort of commitment to one another, that sort of bond, that sort of covenantal relationship with one another. Otherwise, you know what's going to happen? You're going to admonish from the hip. Right? Oh, that was a sin. You know, or you're gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna encourage from a distance. Here's what you need to do. You need to get better now. Now come back to me when you're better. Or you're gonna help, but with strings attached or for a limited time only. But when you take the family metaphor that Paul is driving here, it, it, it says something different. It says, wow, I mean, think about your own family, right? There's something different about that than anywhere else. You don't like your job, you might leave it. You don't like your city, you might leave it. You don't like your family, you're sticking in it. You have no choice. I mean, people try to get out, but you still can't. You share genetics. You share history. You share a story. And so, you know that, you know, it's like you got those, those rough patches. You got those tough people, but you just shrug your shoulders. You say, it's, it's family. We're not going anywhere. And so until you gather that, until you're in that kind of a community, this sort of love is just going to fall flat. Not going to make it. Not going to work. That's why I'm spending all this time on context before even getting into the actual text itself. 
So, and we urge you, brothers, Paul says. This is family business that's about to go down. Now, I'm going to give you one more overarching theme. This one I'm going to go faster with. Um, Paul develops uh, in this letter another theme that I think will help orient us in verse 14 of chapter 5. And that is the theme of the the comprehensive shalom of God. Shalom, the, the peace of God. Okay, comprehensive shalom of God. As with the first theme, um, this one kind of arises within the immediate context of verse 14, but then it connects us to a larger system of Paul's thought. Now, let me show you where I'm getting this. Immediately preceding our verse there in verse 13, what do we see? He says this, be at peace, be at peace among yourselves. Now, this call is likely connected to what's come before in verse 12 through 13, which Paul is talking about members, respecting leaders and other things. But I I don't see any reason why it's also not connected to what follows in our verse there, uh, verse 14. So how I'm reading the, the flow of Paul's thought here is like this. Paul's saying, I'm calling you, church, I'm calling you, covenant family, to labor for peace among yourselves. And here's what that peace looks like. Here's what laboring for peace looks like. Admonish the idle. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. As we press into the family as we love one another wisely in this way we are in fact pursuing the peace the shalom of god and the reason why i say shalom is because in the old testament the concept of peace was so huge so huge and what god is going to do in in, in bringing people to peace and bringing the world to peace it's it's comprehensive so this interpersonal peace, this relational peace that Paul is, is calling the church into is just one dimension of this larger, all-comprehending shalom or peace that God is bringing his church and the world into. That there's going to be a day. There's going to be a day, guys. I mean, if you want to, if I could put a definition on shalom, here's what it is. All is right. There's going to be a day where all is right. Where my soul will be made right, my body will be made right, my relationships with others will be made right, my relationship with the creation and all the brokenness that's there will be made right, and my relationship with God himself will be made right so that the holy God of the universe can take me up in his lap and wipe away the last tear that will ever fall on Nick Weber's cheek. It's all going to be made right. That peace, that shalom, really begins, God, God begins that sort of work here in the context of the covenant family in the church. Do you know that? We are the embassy of heaven. That we are the, the, the outpost of the, the new world that's to come. That we are the outcrop 
of the new humanity, that we are the living room of God's family. That's what the church is. So he begins here. It, It flows, this peace flows from the Prince of Peace and the cross of Christ through the church and from the church, from the church. He's going to bring that peace to the world. And so Paul, in our text, is calling the church into that kind of peace. He's saying, listen, it starts with us. Be at peace with one another. Start working for peace here. Because from our peace, that peace that's going to envelop the world moves out. Shalom is coming. It starts in our covenant family. Now, it's this grand vision of the peace of God moving through the covenant family of God that causes Paul to open and close his letter the way that he does. I said it was a part of a larger system of thought for him in First Thessalonians. Well, hear me out on this. He opens his letter... Like this in verse 1. I read part of it. Let me finish it. Paul, Savannah, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. Now I know that that's just kind of a standard welcome, but there's so much more behind that. Which is why Paul closes the letter in this way. Verse uh, 23 and 24 of chapter 5. Hear this. This is, if you don't hear anything else, hear God say this to you this morning. It's amazing. So Paul ends his letter. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Hear that? Grace and peace to you. And grace and peace is coming for you. Get ready. That's how he envelopes his message or frames his letter. That's it. Peace, shalom. He he brings attention to the God of peace. That when God comes into your life, when you're brought into his family, you're brought to face the God of peace. And that when you come into his family and when you come to face the God of peace, he ensures he is working. He will complete this work of peace in your life. He will make sure you make it to the end. And and though Paul calls the church to be at peace among themselves, he also comforts the church with the fact that God will help them do it. He's going to accomplish his good purpose through us. So, as his covenant family, we are called to partner with God in this mission of bringing the the shalom, the peace of God to the world. One of the ways we do that is by living out 1 Thessalonians 5.14 with one another. Did I lose you all? Are you with me? You primed? You ready? Okay. Now, let's look at at our verse um, here. I'm only going to scratch the surface this morning, um, we're going to do a deep dive 
next week into this. For now, what I really want to do is just open up my Greek lexicon, as it were, my, my Greek dictionary, and say, let's make sure we know these words, what these terms even mean. I'm just going to read to you from my, my, my dictionary. Because it actually will inform you a lot. You don't always do this, but with these words, you want to know, who are the idol? And what does admonish mean? So, we'll do contextual work in Thessalonians and things later, next week. Today, just want to define these terms, and then we'll move from there. So, first, Paul calls us to admonish the idol. Admonish the idol. So, let me ask you this. I'm going to start with the person in front of us, and then we'll get to what does wise love look like for them. So, who is the idol? Who are these these people? What does it mean for them to be idle? Who are these people? Here's the definition for you. To be out of step and going one's own way. Disorderly. Insubordinate. To, 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 to be without socially recognized constraint. Undisciplined. The word uh, is often used uh, as like a military term for the soldier who does not keep in rank. So, you see how if you just look in the English there, you think idle means it's the lazy guy who's back twiddling his thumbs while everyone's working. Now, there's a reason for that, as we'll see contextually in Thessalonica and what Paul is dealing with. But... If you just look at the word in general, it is so much bigger than that. It's not the guy who's just kind of lazy kicked back. It's anybody who says, oh, there's the line God draws. I don't care. It's the guy who's stepping out of line, who's falling out of rank, the insubordinate, the person who, who's pushing against the rebellious. That's what we're getting here with this word idle. So you see how something different comes to the surface as we, as we look underneath it. So now how does Paul say we can wisely love them? How can we wisely love the idle or the insubordinate, the rebellious? Admonish, he says. Admonish the idle. Definition. To counsel about avoidance or cessation of an improper course of conduct. To warn or instruct. You hear that? So there's warning going on as, as you see this person who's falling out of line and, and, and walking towards the cliff. You love them too much to just let them go. Like love doesn't always just kind of, okay, well, it's his own choice. Love says, no way, man. Throws a body in the way and, and I'm gonna, you're going to have to walk over me if you're going to, if you're going to fall off that cliff. Get back on the narrow way. That's what wise love does. It warns, it instructs. It says, that's the wrong way. Get over here where there's life. Admonish the idol. Second little couplet Paul gives us. Encourage the faint-hearted. Encourage the faint-hearted. Who, might I ask, are the faint-hearted? This also is interesting. Faint-hearted uh, seems, this one you can gather, but there's a cool word picture hidden in the Greek. Um, faint-hearted can mean discouraged, can mean depressed, but in the Greek it literally means small-souled. Small-souled. Meaning, have you ever felt it's like a shell of a person? You ever felt that? 
You ever felt like life was just kind of stepping on you and you're just shrinking underneath it? There's just nothing left. You're going through the motions, but inside your soul is just shriveled up and small. If you felt that way, then you've been faint-hearted. You've been discouraged. You've been depressed. How can you wisely love this person when they're standing in front of you? What does wise love look like for them? Paul says, encourage the faint-hearted. Encourage the faint-hearted. Encourage. Here's the definition. To console. To cheer up. Someone especially in connection with the death or other, with death or other tragic events. This gives you a sense of, of what this person's going through. If the word Paul uses here means you come and you comfort the person who's dealing with loss and grief. That's what you do with the faint-hearted. You walk into their valley with them and you, sometimes you just sit down beside them. And with your presence or with your words or with your actions, you try to comfort, console, encourage. Third little couplet that Paul gives us. Help the weak. Seen admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted. Now help the weak. Who are the weak? I'll just give you the definition. Um, the weak pertains to suffering from a debilitating illness, sick or ill, or it also pertains to experiencing some incapacity or limitation. You're weak. You're unable in some way. So these are people who find themselves unable to care for themselves. That's who these weak are. They, 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 they might be weak in body. Or they might be weak in conscience, like Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians and Romans. Or they might be weak in intelligence. Or they might be weak in economy or finances or whatever. But in one way or another, they are in need of something from the outside. I need your help. I'm weak. How does Paul say we can wisely love them? This person when they're standing in front of us. This is, this is awesome. Help. <laughs> Help. Which the definition is as follows. To have a strong attachment to someone or something. Cling to. Hold fast to. Be devoted to. See, if you just hear help, you just kind of think, okay, you're going to help them out. Paul is saying more here. Did you hear that? Cling to, hold fast to, be devoted to that person. I thought this is so beautiful. What are you supposed to do with the weak? You grab a hold of them and you never let them go. I'm not going to let you go. What do you need? How are you doing? We're here for you. You cling to that person. You would think it's the weak that needs to cling to us. Like, I need help. But the gospel moves us in the other direction. So that in the covenant family, the family is going towards the weak saying, no, no, no. We're coming for you. You don't have to ask me twice. I felt that kind of love from you guys and my family as we've, you know, had the ups and downs with our health this past year. has been incredibly comforting from the outside, help coming in the sense of the church clinging to me and my girls. 
Thank you. Third heading. We've looked at wise love in context, wise love in definition. Now I'm going to bring things to a close by looking at wise love in action. I want to make two observations um, that are really going to kind of close things out for us here this morning. First, wise love wears many faces. Okay, you hear me on this? That if, if there's anything that this verse, First uh, Thessalonians 5.14 teaches us, it's that while wise love is always moving towards another person, always moving towards another person, it never quite looks the same way. It's always wearing different faces. It, it, it's, it's tailor-made to the person that, that, that you're trying to love. Okay, so wise love wears many faces. Our culture wants to give love one face and one face only right now, right? You know what I'm talking about? Love looks like tolerance. Love looks like uncritical, unquestioning acceptance. That's it. Anything else, any talk about truth or right or wrong is just completely uh, unloving, uncaring. But the Bible, biblical love, is so much more nuanced, so much more wise. It sees truth and love moving together. And so here's really, well, let, me, let me give you some examples before I, before I move this on. Some people call for love with a firm hand, right? If you've ever had kids, you know this. Sometimes love looks like I've got to be firm right now. No, you're not playing the street. No, you're not having another cupcake. I don't care if it's your birthday. <laughs> that was yesterday for me. <laughs> this is not good for you. Sometimes love has a firm hand. Other times, loving a person calls for a soft hand. I know that was a hard day. I know, I know it's been brutal season lately. I know you didn't get that position or that grade or whatever it was that you wanted. Sorry. Sometimes love has a closed hand. I'm sorry, I'm not, I can't offer that kind of help right now. I don't think it's in your best in, interest. Excuse me. Sometimes love calls for an open hand. Whatever you need, give it to you. It's love that guides us at every point, but wise love takes on many faces. So using the language of our text for a moment, think about this. Given the, the terms we just defined, it would be wrong, would it not, to encourage or help the idle, the insubordinate, the person that's going along and crossing the line and going over the cliff. You don't say, well, let me give, give you resources to get you over the cliff. Or let me, let me encourage you in your direction. No, you warn that brother. You warn that family member. This is not all right. We're doing an intervention here because we love you. There's no, you don't want to encourage and, and, and help necessarily, but you know what I mean. In the same way, you don't want to admonish. You don't want to turn and warn and, 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 and kind of strictly charge the, the, the um, faint-hearted or the weak. Like, how could you be doing that? Well, I, I can't. Do you know what's been going on at my home lately? You, I'm having a hard time. See how... 
Wise love has to take on many faces. Wise love has to be discerning. Uh, the bottom line really is we must know a person truly if we are to love the person wisely. I gotta know who I'm dealing with here. And this gets me into my second observation. First, wise love wears many faces. Second, wise love requires humble diagnostics. If I need to know you in order to truly love you, if I need to know you rightly in order to truly love you, begs the question, how do I get to know you rightly? I'm calling it here, humble diagnostics church. We would save ourselves from so many fires relationally if we got this, myself included. I want to get this. Humble diagnostics. But before I flesh that out for you, um, let me give you an example um, of why this is important. Sometimes it's hard to tell from the outside, is it not? Uh, whether we're dealing with uh, the rebellious, the depressed, or the disabled. I know I'm supposed to love them differently depending on where they're at, but it's hard to tell from the outside where they actually are. I don't know for sure. So think of this as, as an illustration. That mom, that mom that perhaps you think needs a talking to because look at her kids. She just lets them get away with everything or whatever it is. That mom that you think needs a talking to, do you think you would never let your child do that? I wonder if you're aware that she just found out her kid is on the autistic spectrum. And she's trying to go, I I think he's weak. I think I can't call for the same kind of behavior that you'd call from someone else. Or maybe, maybe that mom came from a broken home. And, and, And she's trying desperately to kind of repair, rework the the. the the horrible model she inherited. And so she's depressed and scared and feeling unequipped for the call into motherhood. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. Do you understand how, how if, if, if we just looked at externals at this point, we would say, oh, admonish. She needs a talking to. Yep, 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 yep. Look, the kid's out of line. Admonishment at that point would, would, would break the girl, would break the mom. Because what you thought was the evidence of, of something unruly in her heart was truly evidence of, of brokenness and weakness. And she needs encouragement and help at that point. Not admonishment. I've done this. I mean, I'm just speaking from years of experience in my marriage. If I know what's going on, no, I don't. Whoops. Not at all. And perhaps, to bring it even closer to home, you've experienced the flip side of that. People that have tried, maybe even well-intentioned, to love you, but they actually hurt you more than they helped when it was said and done. Because they just missed you entirely. It's not where I'm at. I wasn't... Why are they scolding me right now? Or, I was in sin. Why are they handing things out to me? So how do you know who you're truly dealing with so you can love them wisely. I'm calling it humble diagnostics. And I would break down this process of humble diagnosis into two steps. Avoid assumptions and ask questions. It's that simple and it's that hard, you guys. (laughs) 
It's amazing how simple this is and how hard it is to do. First, avoid assumptions. I'm just going to let the veteran biblical counselor Paul Tripp talk to you on this one. Um, He's got an awesome book, uh, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hand. Um, And he writes this about assumptions. Why don't we ask better questions and take the time to really listen? Why don't we ask people more often what they meant by what they said or what they did, or, or I'm sorry, or why they did what they did? Why don't we ask people to define their terms or explain their logic? Why don't we ask people more about what they were thinking and feeling? Why don't we get them to talk more about the purposes and desires that shaped their decisions? There are many answers to these questions, but one in particular seems to get in the way of our call to function as the Lord's ambassadors. It's the problem of assumptions. When you assume, you do not ask. If you do not ask, you open yourself up to a world of invalid conclusions and misunderstandings. You may try to be God's instrument, but miss the mark because you are putting two and two together and getting five, and you don't even know it. Thanks to your assumptions, the person you think you are helping may exist only in your mind. For personal ministry to be effective, the principle is simple. Don't assume, ask. This is true not only for a good counselor, but for a wise teacher, elder, spouse, parent, or friend as well. Assuming that you already know what you need to know almost always leads to misunderstandings that blunt and derail personal ministry. If you think you can take something for granted, ask anyway. Only then can you be sure that the help you offer will fit the person's situation. We're trying to help, we're trying to love, and it's got to fit their situation. It's got to wear the face appropriate for their need. Now, I I thought this was awesome. It's quite interesting that uh, the first action wise love is to take uh, really can be classified as inaction, you guys. Inaction. Stop! (laughs) The first action of wise love is stop. Stop it. Just shh. Stop the assumptions. I thought about, you know, in elementary school, I don't know if they still do this, if this is still the, the, the classic technique for when you're on fire or not. But you remember how they tried to teach us? I don't know what they thought elementary school kids were going to be like doing with mat, with lighters in the, in the bathroom. But they're teaching us what to do when we catch fire. And what do they say? Stop. Stop. Drop. And roll. If you run off towards a solution, like, I know what that person needs, let me give it to you. And you're, all, you're running. You know, within the first seconds, the shot goes off and you're going. You want to know what's happening? You're fanning the flame at that point. You might be thinking you're helping, but you're actually just catching the whole situation more on fire. That's why stop means stop fanning the flame and get down. In other words, what I'm saying here is stop the assumptions. Get low. You don't know. And let's start now asking questions. Asking questions. And what I just read, Tripp actually points us to the other side of this humble diagnosis process I'm, I'm talking about. Avoid assumptions, ask questions. As far as I can see, this is really just the same step, just put positively. Okay? Uh, If I'm going to avoid assumptions, then I necessarily need to ask questions. 
Stop assumptions. Start with questions. Wise love is not guided by my preconceived notions, but by your particular needs. And I'll never know what those are if I don't ask. Let me illustrate this for you by reading a story from one missionary's experience overseas. I thought this was amazing. Are you with me still? I know I go for a while. Sorry. Um, here, I want you to hear this. Over seven years of my 12 in Korea as a foreign missionary, they were spent doing evangelistic work with prostitutes. My initiation into that ministry came simply because of the large number of those unreached peoples and because I thought they were rather clearly sinners. I saw them as in rebellion against God and needing repentance. And I went calling them to faith. I defined their needs in terms of how I had seen needs in a North American pastorate. In other words, he came in with a lot of assumptions. The fruits of my initial encounters were very few. The young women listened, but never left prostitution. No one changed. The breakthrough came when one person began to change. Me. As I worked with the women, I gathered more information about the system of which they were a part. Now we're talking about asking questions now. I learned that many of them had entered prostitution because it was often the only work they could find in an Asian male-dominated culture. The war had destroyed their links with the extended family system, and often they were the senior breadwinners. There were brothers and sisters to take care of. Frequently, the young women came from rural homes looking for quick money in the big city. Personal problems at home or a bad economic year sent them looking for a better way. They were met, now hear this, they were met at the trains by pimps who offered them a place to stay for the night. In the home, they were gang raped. When they got ready to leave, they were informed they had to pay for room and board. They couldn't and found prostitution the only way to pay their debts. After a few weeks of this, their debt was paid for by another brothel owner and they were moved closer to the 38th parallel. They had become slaves of a system from which they could never break free. Their debts were always higher than their ability to pay. They found themselves imprisoned and oppressed, their humanity buried in shame and guilt. All this information, he says, as I gathered this information and learned about them, learned about them, stopped the assumptions, started asking. All this information began to change my attitude. I discovered that a person is not only a sinner, he or she is also sinned against. Do you hear that? He was coming to these ladies purely with admonishment. Now, are all people sinners in need of grace and rebels against God? Yes. But he was wearing that face alone. You need to get out of sin. What are you doing in prostitution? You're filthy. Whatever it is. And his whole, his whole approach changed once he learned rightly who he was dealing with. These are people who have been enslaved, who've been captured into this system. And so he started, he started thinking along the lines of encouragement, the encouragement the gospel brings, the help the gospel brings, the freedom from oppression that grace really is, and liberating power that the gospel really brings. He starts speaking that to these ladies. It becomes effective. 
in his love and wise. There's one final injunction in 1 Thessalonians 5.14. I'm just going to leave us with it. Been waiting until now. Paul closes the whole thing. He comes out, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Be patient with them all. Here's what I'm hearing him say. Whoever you're dealing with, patience is the governing principle. Going slow with the person. And here's why, you guys. This this brings me to face immediately. Uh, it brings me back into the covenant family theme and, and to see that everything the church is doing is done in the light of the cross. So what does the cross say? If the cross says anything at all, it says that God is patient with us even unto death, even through death on a cross. That's what the cross says. I'm not giving up on you. And Paul says, we got to have love like that. Well, I'm telling you, if we are going to have a love like that, it's because we know the love of our Father like that. And if I could leave you with anything, it would be this. Don't ever, let's never divorce this string of commands from the gospel. It's the gospel that makes this string of commands possible in our midst. If we're going to love like this, it's because we know personally that sort of love, that we've been loved like this by the Father. I mean, think about it. We are the unruly. We were the ones out of line. I don't want you, God. Get out of my life. There's the line. I don't care. He came down anyways. Patient with us. Overlooking our offenses. Goes to the cross. Takes it on his back. We were the faint-hearted. Our sins crushed us to the dirt. No hope. Comes down. We were the weak. Unable to save ourselves, unable to get right with a holy God, unable to get out of the mess we have made. The gospel is 1 Thessalonians 5.14 on display in Christ's life. He comes in and loves us wisely and loves us unto death, loves us into new life, loves us into a new family. And then he calls us to love one another in the same way. Amen. God, thank you for your patience with us. We so badly want to be across cultured people. We so badly want to look like the cross of our Savior in the way that we approach love and care for one another. Jesus, I pray that you would help us to do that. I pray that your spirit would lead us forward into the wise love you demonstrated while you walked this earth. How would you do it in and through us? If there are places where our relationships are broken, where we're not pursuing peace, help us. Blessed are the peacemakers. They shall be called the sons of God. It's what your children do. If there are places where we're confused about what love would do, what face would love wear, reveal it to us. Help us, God. We want to go with your gospel to one another and to the world. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen.